0: All right, well, this morning we are finishing up our summer series on the ancient creeds. I know I've said this um, a lot throughout this, but it it really has been a blessing uh, for me personally, something that um, I see that I needed. Uh, The Lord has taught me more about himself, but also about his bride, the church. I can honestly say um, that he's increased my love for the church um, through this. Um, I was driving uh, to church two weeks ago and was just compelled to pray for the churches that I was passing um, along the way, some of them with doctrine that is not at all like ours, um, but I genuinely prayed for them, not that God would change them, but that they would just worship him um, and know him, and um, it's something that I'm continuing to do as i drive and pass uh, different places of worship maybe there are ways he's helped you through this as well i hope so um, but i'm grateful for what he's doing in my own heart and here's what i hope is that you hold on to these things it's it's uh, i say this at the end of every series every book that we go through whatever um, but it, it really is so easy to just kind of move on uh, If the lord teaches you something the lord shows you something in his word the lord Uh, you go to a conference or whatever and and just you're impacted in in, in certain ways and and it it really is easy in our lives to kind of just kind of drift off after a short season or just kind of forget and and my my hope and my prayer is that we don't forget um, whatever it is the lord's doing in our hearts Um, the creeds are not at all scripture they're not scripture we've said that um, throughout this but they are faith that was handed down to us whether you grew up reciting them. and I know some of you grew up in churches that you recited these uh, often, weekly probably, or whether you even knew that they existed, and I'm I'm sure there are some of you like me that grew up in churches that you didn't even know that there were creeds, um, and and certainly that was my um, church upbringing. Um, But whether you grew up in either of those, they're good for us, Doctrinally, they're good for us. They're good reminders of what, what is orthodoxy. What is saving faith? What is that? Our text this morning is First Timothy chapter one, verses three through seven. And so go ahead and turn there. As you're getting there, if you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. First, Timothy chapter one, beginning with verse three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, Lord. We praise you for the gift that it is to us. So help us, we pray today, that we would hear from you through it, that you'd help us and grow us and shape us by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This is Paul's letter to Timothy, his young co-worker. It's written to help Timothy know how to address certain issues that were taking place in the church in Ephesus. We're just looking at a few of the verses in the beginning of the letter that help us with our study. Look at what Paul says in verse Three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It's urgent in the church, as people, as part of the church, that we strive toward orthodoxy, which again is right belief. Make sure, okay? Make sure that you know that that before we finish today, okay? It's the end of this series. Orthodoxy is right belief. Paul's saying that we must not teach any different doctrine. Remember at the beginning of of this series, we looked at Jude verse 3 as we considered what right belief is. Jude 3 says this, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, here in 1 Timothy, Paul's saying to Timothy that we must do that. We must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we can have confidence. We can have confidence when we look at the creeds. This is the faith delivered to the saints. This is right belief. It's orthodoxy, that we we have faithful servants of Christ, some of who were, were early church fathers, disciples of the apostles or disciples of the disciples of the apostles, who have handed down to us what is true, what is orthodox, what is right belief. And Paul goes on in verse... For, not, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We, we need to guard against a devotion to myths and endless genealogies. In other words, as Paul says, we ought to guard against things that promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. I think our our main emphasis as people who are disciples of Jesus should be on what we know to be orthodox. That that should be the main thing for us. What is right belief? What is saving faith? That doesn't mean that we don't take stances on things that aren't that we don't have positions on various doctrines that don't determine what saving faith is, what is orthodoxy. But we learn to keep them where they belong. We strive toward being Christians who stop talking about non-orthodox things as if they are necessary for salvation. We don't divide over those things. We're committed to the church. We don't look down on or disassociate from those who disagree with us on those things. Now, that may be very hard for some of you. It has been for me, especially in previous years of ministry. But that's not how we want to be. How can we get there? How can we get to a place where we keep the main things the main thing? Verse 5. I don't know if you watched the Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, but if you do, this is the way. Okay? Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is what? Love. Love. What does that look like? What does love look like? It looks like Jesus, self-denying, self-sacrificing, embracing outcasts, welcoming strangers, loving those who are lost. We might say, well, what kind of love? The kind that is patient, the kind that is kind, the kind that doesn't envy the kind that doesn't boast, the kind of love that isn't arrogant or rude, the kind that doesn't insist on its own way, the kind that's not irritable, the kind of love that's not resentful, the kind of love that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, the kind of love that does rejoice with the truth, the kind of love that bears all things, The kind of love that believes all things. The kind of love that hopes all things. The kind of love that endures all things. The kind of love that doesn't end. That's how Paul describes the love of Christ in 1 Corinthians 13. He's not describing the love of marriage there. He's describing the love of Christ that is reflected in his church. how are we to love? How does Paul say it in the text here? How are we to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? Oh, that we would love others that way. Not only those within our local church, but those who don't agree with us on certain doctrines. And let me say, we know what love feels like. Okay, we can all nod to that, right? We know what love feels like. So it's not good enough to say, well, I'm doing this out of love when inside of us we have everything contrary to 1 Corinthians 13 going on in our heart toward the person that we're correcting or whatever. Out of love we do this. Sincere love. From a pure heart, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verses 6 and 7, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It is swerving from the things in verse 5, that kind of love. It's swerving away from those things that causes us to wander into vain discussions. It's incredibly dangerous for us to swerve from the kind of love Paul writes about that Jesus displays for us, the kind of love that Jesus lived on earth for us. It's dangerous. It leads to vain discussions and ultimately can lead and will lead to heresies. And so I want to spend some time addressing some heresies that the creeds addressed and why we reject them. There, there are others that we could look at but, but aren't relevant for us today. There are two main ones that I want to address. We'll see how the, the branches that come from those, how they're happening around us and, and why we must reject them. First is modalism and the second is Arianism. Modalism is the view that there is one God who has sequentially revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet, each divine name is merely a mode of the one God's activity as opposed to a distinct person. You can see how the Athanasian Creed purposed to refute that teaching. and Consider this statement in the Athanasian Creed neither mixing the person or dividing their essence. Last week I I mentioned that there are seven statements to help summarize the doctrine of the Trinity. The first, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father and there is only one God. Now, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Those those six statements rule out modalism, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all the same person in three different modes of expression. We know that from the Gospel because the Father sends Jesus, and Jesus in turn sends the Spirit. Now, today, in our context, oneness Pentecostalism really is the primary denomination that holds to modalism. The Scriptures, the Athanasian Creed, lead us to reject this. It is not orthodoxy. We must think rightly about God or we are not thinking about God. We must think rightly about God or we are not thinking. Thinking about God. It's that important. The second heresy that we'll see has more branches, and that's Arianism. Now, we've talked about Arianism a lot in this series. It was, it was a massive issue then, and it continues to be in some ways today. And part of that is because of that threat it was in the past. Part of why we're talking it so much is because of the threat that it is today. As a reminder, Arianism believes that the Son is a created being inferior to the Father. That's a simple definition. Now, that likely sets off alarms immediately for most of you, if not all of you, and it should. But you can see how dangerous this is and subtle. It sounds nice. The teaching of Arianism sounds winsome. It sounds like it makes sense. We know some of the religious groups that are Arian today, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Unitarianism, those, those beliefs and those religious groups should be rejected. They reject that the Son is truly God. They reject the Trinity. They're not orthodox. They don't believe the gospel. The Athanasian Creed says this, the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, they are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being. There are also not three unfathomable beings, nor three uncreated beings, but one uncreated and unfathomable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty, and yet they are not three almighty beings, but one almighty being. As such, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. However, there are not three gods, but one God, as such, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three Lords, but one Lord. We can admit that the teaching of Arianism can make sense because the Trinity is hard. We talked about that last week, right? It's hard. You read that, and you're like, well, that is unfathomable. That really is difficult. To, to, to say and to believe there is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all God. And there is only one God. That is difficult. And so for someone to come along and say, whoa, 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 well, you, you have to understand how that plays out. Yes, God was and then the Son came into being. He was the only begotten Son of God. So he came into being later. God the Father creating him, and he, he submits to the Father. You can see where that is like, okay, well, that, that makes, my mind can, can understand that, so I like that. It's appealing, and it's dangerous, because if we're not serving God rightly, we're not serving God. If we're not believing the right things about God, we're not believing God. Another branch similar that comes from Arianism is uh, subordinationism. That's the belief that there is an inferiority of being, status, or role assigned to either the Son or the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Now, I bring this up because I mentioned this briefly last week. And I talked about how some have made it a pillar for complementarianism. And, and so, I'm, I want to mention this again because a question came after the service um, that asked this, well, what does that do to complementarianism? And that's a good question. And the answer is this, it does nothing to complementarianism. and It should never have been a pillar in the first place. It's, it's not true. It's It's a heretical statement about the Son. The Son is not eternally subordinate to the Father. Now, this isn't isn't a sermon about complementarianism, neither was last week's sermon. I brought it up last week as a confession of misuse and wrong teaching, and I bring it up again to highlight how easily it is for us to slip into heresy, false teaching. We must make the aim of our charge love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, to bring the series to a close, I want us to consider this. I talked a bit about it last week from 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven. 11. It says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Today, I want us to consider how a commitment to the creeds and specifically the doctrine of the Trinity can assist us in contending for the faith. In fact, it's necessary, it is necessary that we do. We should know the doctrine of the Trinity as people who are followers Of God, we should know the doctrine of the Trinity. We should sing about it. We should celebrate it. And we should explain it well when we do. Now, maybe that means we need to study more. Maybe by reading the Athanasian Creed on a regular basis, just to bolster our belief and understanding of the Trinity. But we need to have confidence in the Trinity. We, we should make sure that our churches and our confessions are places where no Aryan or Unitarian can ever feel comfortable. And it's very easy not to do that. It is very easy to have church services or conversations where an Aryan, a Unitarian, someone like that thinking could sit and be just happy through the whole thing because we're not trinitarian in our conversations we're not trinitarian often in our worship our worship should be trinitarian worship consider a couple of things first of all the only reason that prayer is possible is because God is triune the only reason that prayer is possible is because God is Trinity. You think about that. We pray to the Father through the mediator, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we can't pray to the Father apart from Jesus. We petition the Father in Jesus' name. Not only that, but the Spirit directs us in prayer and is how our prayers happen. Romans 8, 26 and 27, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Think about the truth of that. What Paul's writing there in Romans 8 is this. Even when you don't know what to pray, even when you are begging to the Lord things that aren't good for you, The Spirit knows exactly what you need and is praying right things for you. He's praying on your behalf what is good for you, what is right for you, what is correct for you. It's phenomenal. Jude chapter 20, uh, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. We cannot pray apart from God being Trinity. Tim Chester writes, true prayer is Trinitarian and can only be Trinitarian. The Father invites us to call upon Him through the Son, by the Spirit. We are not Christian apart from the Trinity. Let me say that again. We are not Christian." You are not Christian apart from the Trinity. The Trinity and a firm belief in the Trinity will affect our worship and our prayer. If we desire to worship God as He is, we must worship God as Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is only one God. And the Trinity will lead us to ministry, to participate in ministry and mission. You consider how the Trinity displays this for us. God sent the Son to the earth. The Son voluntarily suffered, denied Himself for others. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all exhibiting the virtues of humility and service. The Holy Spirit doesn't glorify self, but glorifies the Son, Jesus glorifies the Father. The Father also glorifies the Son. We should seek to reflect the ministry and the mission of the Trinity as people who are called by Him within the church and within the world. And we should seek the glory of God in Trinity and honor brothers and sisters in Christ in how we serve them and how we love them. The Athanasian Creed states it this way. The Catholic faith will not then allow us to say that there are three gods or there are three lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but is begotten only of the Father. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten, but only proceeds from the Father and the Son. As such, there is one Father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. One Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, no one is before, no one is after another, no one is greater or inferior to another. In their fullness, the three persons are all co-eternal and co-equal with each other so that in everything that has been said, we must worship their unity and Trinity and their Trinity in unity. Let us pray pray that God will help us to be a people who contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to us. Now, how do we end this series other than by committing to what I just put forward, pursuing a commitment to the Trinity in our worship and prayer and living? We end by partaking together in the Lord's Supper. In this sacrament given to us by the Lord Jesus, a means of of rehearsing the truth of the gospel, that Jesus' body was broken for us. That His blood was literally shed for the forgiveness of our sins. As we receive the bread and the cup, let's consider the truths that we've looked at this summer, and let's be sure we can partake today saying together, we believe. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. You're so good to us, Lord. And we confess, we cannot cannot fully grasp or understand the Trinity. But we can say to you, we believe. We believe that you exist in a means and in a way that our minds can't comprehend, comprehend. That you truly are unfathomable. And that that is good. And although you are unfathomable, you have in grace and mercy shown us, revealed to us who you are. Your love for us. Your faithfulness to us. The means by which we can be saved. You've granted to us your Holy Spirit to help us to have understanding, to have faith. So We praise you, Lord, as we prepare to come and receive the bread and the cup and then partake it together, Lord. We ask for your help. We want to be people who truly contend for the faith delivered to us, and we want to love well. To help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.